for those of you who remember me from the past and came back anyway, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to move this over here since, is that, is that going to mess things up? Because everybody kind of left wingers in this church. Come over and sit over on the left. Is that because it's warmer? Y'all crowding together just to get warm? <clears throat> well, Harold and I talked about what I could do this week and uh, what we finally settled on. I was I prayed about it and thought about it. and I used to teach in our uh, non-traditional program uh, at Dallas Christian. I used to teach a course in prophets and I uh, would always spend time in Isaiah. And by the way, I'm going to leave my phone on so I'll have... Well, wait a minute, I don't need to. There's a clock back there. A lot of churches don't have clocks. You know what it means when a preacher takes his watch off and puts it on a podium? Absolutely nothing at all. So, um, I want to start. We're going to do the first 12 chapters, and if we have time, uh, we will see if we can get further than that, but I don't think we will. First 12 chapters of Isaiah are all one vision of Isaiah. Uh, he calls it the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You can see it right there at the beginning of chapter 1. And he prophesied during the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And they were kings of Judah. Um... Uzziah, all these guys are, are cousins of Isaiah. Well, they're right there in verse 1. So if you have a Bible and you turn to Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verse 1, you're going to see the names of the kings. Uzziah means the Lord is mighty or the Lord is strong. Um, he was, all these guys were Isaiah's cousins. Isaiah is of the royal family, of the nobility. And uh, Jotham, the next king, was a good man. Uh, all these people, the three, were good. But Ahaz, I think Ahaz originally, his name might have been Ahaziah. But this part of the name, this Yah, on the end, is, is an abbreviated form of the Lord's name. And apparently, the people, because Ahaz was an evil man, they took the name Yah, Yahweh, out of his name. Now, you probably already know this, but the word Lord in your Bibles, when it's capitalized all the way through, um, I can show you this in chapter 6. And verse, most obvious place in Isaiah to see it, you'll see it in a lot of places, but Isaiah chapter 6 and uh, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, you see that word Lord there, capitalized all the way through. And whenever you see that, that's the personal name for God that that Moses gave, uh, God gave Moses out of the bush. It's the name Yahweh. Yahweh means, has many meanings. According to the rabbis, it has 72 meanings. Uh, most of the words of uh, the Hebrew Bible have many meanings. Now, some of you, uh, any of you studied Genesis after, under me back several years ago? Uh, I don't know if you'd remember that, but... Uh, Genesis, some of you might remember, Genesis 1 makes a tremendous play on the numbers. Uh, the name for God in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the name for God is a plural word because God is more than just alone. And plural in Hebrew means three or more. Uh, they have a dual form. 
So the word Elohim, God's name, is plural, three or more. Uh, if he were two, it would be Elohim. And if it were one, it would be Eloah. So God's name <clears throat> means something. Uh, if you look closely at, uh, and, and all this stuff is about the Hebrew text of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1.1 has seven words in it and 24 letters, <clears throat> multiples of seven. Genesis 1 verse 2 has 14 words and 35 letters. It's all multiples of seven. So it's not just seven days in Genesis 1, but it's in the text of Genesis as well, all the way through into the second chapter. They put the chapter division in the wrong place. There's a play on the number 7, also the number 10. Now, some of you may remember I gave you a list of numbers. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And 12, I'll give you that many tonight. The meanings of these numbers are so significant that they are the key to understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, Moses says, the Lord our God, Yahweh, our God, is one. The word one means unity. They have a different word for one by himself. <clears throat> the Hebrew word there is echad. And you may remember that from, and then again you may not. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> it's there somewhere, but it's faint. But uh, Moses said, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, the Lord our God, the Lord, one. And he uses a word that means unity. It's the same word used for Adam and Eve being one. So he's obviously not talking about one person. He has another word for that. And then the number two is a number of a fact. Uh, two people giving the same testimony can put somebody to death in the Old Testament. Two is a fact. Uh, when uh, Pharaoh had two dreams, you remember? Uh, Joseph said this, this means that it's decreed by God. This is set up once and for all. Howdy, folks. Uh, and then the number three is, the, is God's number, God's signature. Uh, the passage we just looked at, the seraphs were saying, holy, holy, holy. We're getting a little better balanced in here now. I'm going to move this back. Holy, holy, holy. It's always three. It's never four holies or two holies. But it's three. Why? Because God is three, and yet he is one. So three is God's number. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, and again, back to the word Elohim, the Old Testament name for God. Uh, in English, the Eem ending here means three or more. Four is the number for the world, or the universal number. North, south, east, west. The four corners of the earth. Read Revelation. He says there are four angels holding back the four winds at the four corners of the earth. It means God's total control over planet earth. Five is the number for grace. Uh, I just did a study in, uh, in a church near the college uh, on um, the... Genealogy of Matthew. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus has, again, the number seven, 15 different ways in that genealogy. Just like Genesis 1, Matthew 1 does the same thing. Seven, 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 seven. It only works in the Greek text. I mean, the original manuscripts of, of that writing. But the amazing thing is, even though there's all those sevens in there, there are five women. Five is the number of grace. See, in the Old Testament, women were, if you listed the authority in the Old Testament, be the high priest, the priests, 
the, the leaders, the elders, uh, the, the men, the slaves, and the women. Women were property owned by the men in the Old Testament. It's patriarchal society. You know, women didn't make that up. Men did. If women made it up, women would rule. But men made it up and they ruled. Well, that's, you know, the amazing thing is in the midst of all that miracle of, of that uh, passage in Matthew, there are actually three sets of 14 names in Matthew's genealogy. I don't know if you've read that. But if you count the numbers of the names... Or look down in verse 17, he's done it for you. He says there's three sets of 14 names. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile in Babylon. 14 generations from the exile to Jesus who is called the Messiah. Three sets of 14. Well, 14 is a number for salvation. Two times seven is a number for salvation. Three is a number for God. So 3 times 14 means God's salvation. The name Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, means God's salvation. So it all, it's, it's just an incredible thing the way the Bible holds together. And the symbolism and the numbers uh, are just so important in studying the scriptures. Number 6, you probably know, 666. It's a man's number. It means man. It's also sin. Uh, man and sin. Man's created on the sixth day. And all of Genesis is about man and sin, especially the first 11 chapters. And number seven is four plus three. God and the world together. That's perfection or completion. So the number seven means perfect. Number eight means new beginning. And sometimes it means deity. But new beginning, Jesus' name spells out 888. Remember how many people were with Moses in the ark? No, Moses never took anybody in an ark. Uh, it was Noah. How many, people, how many people were on the ark with Noah? Well, a total of eight. It's a new beginning. Uh, what day is the day of circumcision in the Old Testament? It's the eighth day. You'd think it'd be seven because that's the perfect number, but no, it's eight. It means new beginning. And the reason it's the eighth day, if, if you've read the book None of These Diseases, you know that God commanded circumcision on the eighth day because the fibrinogen level in the blood is higher on the eighth day than any other time in the baby's life. The clotting agent. You know what the Jews call a girl? Oh, I blew it. Never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, what do, the, what do the Jews call a baby that hadn't been circumcised? Well, it's a girl. Uh, okay. Nine is a number of gifting. Sorry. There are seven spiritual gifts in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I mean, nine spiritual gifts. There are nine fruit of the Spirit. Ten is the number for enough, like Ten Commandments. I'd say it's enough. Uh, Genesis 1, God speaks to create the universe. He speaks exactly ten times. Read it, count it, just like the Ten Commandments. Ten means enough. Twelve, <clears throat> back to these numbers again, three and four. Three times four is twelve. Twelve is the number of God's people. There were twelve patriarchs, twelve tribes, twelve apostles. When you get to the book of Revelation, there are twenty-four elders around the throne. Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God, and symbol. Uh, and there are many more. There, there are books... Uh, there's a book called uh, Biblical Mathematics. Uh, there's a book that I think is the best book I've ever read on numbers. I did all my own study on Revelation. I finally came to the conclusion, the key to this book is the numbers. 
And so I wrote a little paper on the numbers. And I showed it to a friend of mine here in Tulsa. Some of you may know uh, Carl Steele. You remember him? I showed my paper to Carl Steele. And he said, well, haven't you read Bollinger's great classic number in Scripture? And I said, never heard of it. And he turned around, and there were two of them on his on the shelf, and he gave me one. He said, take it. And I went home and read it. And he had come to every conclusion I had come to with a whole lot better reasoning than mine and a whole lot more. And it's called Number in Scripture. I'm telling you, uh, the numbers are very important in Scripture. <clears throat> so when we study Scripture, we need to look here Isaiah's prophecy is a universal prophecy. He prophesies under four kings. Even though one of them's not a very good one, Ahaz took the name Yah out of his name. <coughs> Verse 1 Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Anybody know how Uzziah died? Remember the story? Went into the temple and decided he was going to burn incense. The priest wouldn't let him in. And he broke out in leprosy when he became furious with the priests. And he ended up dying of leprosy. Uh, he was a great king and did a lot of good. Uh, built a lot of forts around the outside of Israel. But I don't want to spend time talking about all these kings. Hezekiah, when you get a little farther along, you're going to see that Hezekiah and Isaiah worked together and prayed together when the, Babel, when the uh, Assyrians came into the land of Israel. And when the Assyrians came in, uh, under a man by the name of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, it was 702 B.C. And you can look up Sennacherib And look up the word prism after that. Sennacherib kept a record of his reign and it was found. And it's the key to unlocking the meanings of ancient languages because it's written in three different languages. Ugaritic, Akkadian, and Babylonian or Hebrew. Very similar to Hebrew. And so we, we learned those other two languages, Ugaritic and Akkadian. We had all kinds of, of uh, stuff in, that, in those languages, but we didn't know what the languages were. They looked like little flags pointing different directions and things like that. It was just a strange-looking language. And because of his prism, they've been able to figure out they could cross-reference with the Hebrew and translate those languages. So Sennacherib invaded Israel and came all the way down to Jerusalem. And in his annals, written on this prism, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been translated into English. And it says, I conquered Nob, I conquered Tyre, I conquered Sidon, I conquered, I conquered, I conquered, I conquered. But when he got to Jerusalem, he said, I terrified Jerusalem and my great army. Because if you remember what happened, when his army surrounded the city, they said, what makes you think your Yahweh is any different from any of the other idols? Now, that's a mistake. That's an ego thing. And so when they took the note that, that this Rabshakeh delivered, that this commander for Sennacherib delivered, they laid it out on the altar outside the temple. And Isaiah... And Hezekiah said, Lord, do you see what this man says about you? That you're no different from the idols. And God gave Isaiah a message and said, don't worry about him. I'll go out tonight and I'll fight for you. And so in the morning when they all woke up, all this big army surrounding the city of Jerusalem, there were 185 dead, 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers. And, and Sennacherib just turned tail and went back home. That was the end. He was broken. The scripture says the angel of the Lord went out and killed him. And even Herodotus, a Greek historian, 
tells this story. But he says there were rats in the camp and they trued through all the weapons of the enemy and so on and people died and it could have been bubonic plague. Who, who knows how God's angel works? <clears throat> but, you know, Hezekiah was an incredible man and he and Isaiah together worked to turn away this invasion. And that's what this first chapter is about. And the background of this chapter, folks, is just like what's going on in America right now. We've got terrorists living among us. We've got terrorists living overseas, wanting to kill us, destroy us. We've got wealthy people here who are controlling people and keeping people poor. We're on the other end of the spectrum. The middle class is shrinking. I mean, you know, you can see what's going on. We're going to be taxed into infinity if we don't stop this. I don't know what's, what we're going to do. We'll see. I mean, God's in charge of the future. Uh, but the last several presidents have just been no help, and Washington's not going to solve our problems. I'm just I'm convinced of that. God will solve our problems if people will turn to God. But we're in a culture like Isaiah's that's taking God out of everything. We've taken prayer out of school. We've taken Bible study out of all schools. You know, the, the very thing that this country was founded on, even Thomas Jefferson, who, who said that the whole United States, that the whole country should be based in biblical education. You know that Harvard and Yale and all the, all the great universities were originally Bible colleges. They trained people for ministry. And what's happening now is that they're removing, extricating God on purpose from the schools. They're taking him out of public life. They're trying to get the Ten Commandments right now taken off the Supreme Court entry. The ACLU, American Communist Lawyers Union. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're idiots. They did some great things back in the 50s and the early 60s. But they've just become crazy. They just, it's just anti-anything having to do with God. Well, these people in Isaiah's day are in a similar situation with us. Look at what he says, starting in verse 2. Frequently, the, the prophets will call on the heaven and earth as witnesses. If you have two witnesses, then what you say is a fact. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Now, I wrote the word Yahweh, but I didn't explain this one here. If you look at Psalm 110, verse 1, you'll see both of those words in the first line, the two names for God. Yahweh said to Adonai, this one here, without the capital letters all the way through, L -O, capital L, small O-R-D, is the human figure of God. And so the Father speaks to the Son. Jesus uses this in Matthew twenty-two forty-four in context, pointing to himself, saying, I am the one seated at God's right hand. See, this is the king that was promised to David. 2 Samuel 7, 14, God promises David, you will never lack a king ruling over my people. And he's talking about the one seated at the Lord's right hand, Jesus. Now, David didn't know his name was Jesus, but David did write this psalm under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he was speaking by the Spirit when he wrote, Yahweh said to Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. See, there's two of them up there. David's the first guy to recognize that. Isaiah comes along 300 years later, and Isaiah knows it too. When we get to chapter 6, okay, if I speak on chapter 6, that's my favorite. I'll bet. It's a preacher's passage. 
So he, he says this, he says, for the Lord has spoken, and then here's what the Lord says. And it actually says it this way, folks. I'm going to try to emphasize this the way the Hebrew text does. Sons I have reared and brought up, and they have rebelled against me. You know, it's like God is, is surprised. It's almost like he's speaking as a man. He's in shock that he would raise children who would immediately turn against him after he'd given them everything. He says, the ox knows his owner. You know, God could have just said, y'all are dumber than an ox. But he didn't do that. He said he said it, but he didn't say it that way. The ox knows his owner, the donkey his owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. See, the ox even knows who his master is. And the donkey, you're dumber than a donkey, he's telling them. The donkey knows who his... By the way, the Hebrew word there for master is the word Baal. You know, the God that they worship. Baal, one of the reasons God hated that so much is because Baal means husband, owner, lord, master. And God is the husband, owner, lord, and master of Israel. And so he, he's punning on that name. He goes on, verse 4, Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. It literally says children who cause corruption. Later on in chapter 51, Isaiah says, The people of Israel are so wicked that they are polluting the nations around them. Does that sound familiar? In our country, the ugly American is polluting people around the world. We're stripping nations. We're destroying the economy of people for our own. I'm talking about the wealthy here. For our own wealth. The people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. That phrase right there, Holy One of Israel, is used over and over and over in the book of Revelation, uh, in the book of uh, Isaiah, to point to God. God is the Holy One. And that indicates that everybody else is unholy. And then he, he shifts from talking about the literal nation of Israel to speaking of Israel as though it were a man who had been beaten up. Look at, look at this image here. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness in it. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. You know, here's a picture of a man who's been beaten and bloody, and there's no hospital. No one's taking care of it. And God wants to take care of it. And then he describes the reality. Verse 7, your country is desolate. Why? Because this guy came down with his great army and conquered all the cities down to Jerusalem. Your country's desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. In other words, all these people have come in, and they're eating the grapes off the grapevine. And they're pinning up Jerusalem. like a. In fact, uh, Sennacherib says, I pinned up uh, Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And then verse 8, in this image, the daughter of Zion is a symbol for Jerusalem, the people of Israel. Daughter of Zion means something special to God. God raised Jerusalem up like a daughter. And after the Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem, Jeremiah wrote his Lamentations. Have you ever read that book, Lamentations? He talks about a woman who's been raped. Her skirts are thrown up over her head. She's bruised all over. 
He's talking about the daughter of Zion. He's talking about Jerusalem. That's what happened about a hundred years after Isaiah did his writing. So the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. You know, they had shelters that they would put up uh, to, to watch over a vineyard so they wouldn't let people steal the grapes out of the vineyard. Otherwise, foreigners would come through and strip the vineyard. And so they built, like here is a cucumber patch or a vineyard, and they built a watchtower in it. And they would go up and inside that and watch over the place so people wouldn't steal their stuff. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, and then the reality like a city under siege. See, they're surrounded by this guy and his army. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We'd have been like Gomorrah. How many of you know where that's spoken of, referring to Jerusalem as Sodom in Scripture? Go back to the book of Revelation and look at chapter 2. See, Isaiah, this is not the kind of sermon where people come up afterwards and say, oh, it's a good sermon for you said if there wasn't some people who were still believers, you would have been like Sodom. You'd have been wiped out by God's judgment. Verse, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Christ is speaking here and he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. If you read on through here, you'll discover that he calls Jerusalem Sodom and the Jews Satanists because they refuse to believe in Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 9. Next page. I know your deeds... Behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. You know, the Jews are of Satan by the time the book of Revelation is written. The Jews are the ones who are attacking Christians. The Jews were the first people to kill Christians. You, you knew this, right? You've read the book of Acts. You know that the Jews stoned the martyr Stephen for preaching the truth to them. The Jews are the same ones who put Jesus to death. All the way through the Old Testament, most of them didn't believe. And that's what Isaiah is saying back here. He says, you'd have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. You'd have been like followers of Satan that needed to be judged by God. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom, he says back in Isaiah. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Man, oh man, try that on Sunday. Multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. My soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. I wonder how God feels about the worship of the church. 
I wonder if God's sick and tired of bearing, carrying us. I wonder how many of us, our hearts are really in it. You know, you wouldn't be here on Friday night if your heart wasn't in it. You care. And uh, one of the joys of teaching caring people is that they, they'll look further into it. It means something to them. And it's tough to teach people who don't care. I've done my share of that. And I'm sure you have too. Yeah, it's, it's uh, like Psalm 51. David says, if I thought you wanted a sacrifice, I'd give you a sacrifice. But, but the sacrifices of God, Psalm 51 says, are a broken heart. That's what God wants. So we need to repent. All of us do. I'm as guilty as anybody else. I'm in church probably more than you are. Probably. And... Uh, you know, it's a painful experience sometimes. And I know that God is frustrated by our weak. We just don't repent enough. We're not sorry enough for our sins. And we come to church and we sing the Orthodox songs, you know, kind of like they did in Germany when Hitler was killing all the Jews. The churches were still coming together and singing all the Orthodox songs, praying all the Orthodox prayers. wonder how God looked at that. You know, it's disturbing to think about that we shut our eyes to what's going on. There are people, I don't know how things are in Tulsa. I don't know if they're really grinding poverty here. But in downtown Dallas, we sure have it. And I've spent a lot of time in Mexico City, and there's more than one million children abandoned by their parents on the streets of Mexico City. Mexico City is the biggest city in the world. Almost 35 million people. And uh, they don't care. They don't care for their family. They don't care for their kids. I hope that God will bring revival to this country. I hope he'll bring it to Mexico. And I hope he'll bring it around the world. God says, I've had enough of your worship. This trampling of my courts. He says, you bring meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. What's incense in the Bible? Prayers prayers of the saints. God says it reeks, it stinks. When you spread out your hands in prayer, now here's the way the Jews prayed. In the ancient world, they would look up and hold up their hands. And when they worshiped, they would bow. We kind of got it backwards in our culture from that, but... Uh, when you spread out your hands in prayer, God says, I will hide my eyes from you because your hands are full of blood. You've been mistreating people. You know, these are the guys that he's preaching to here. He's preaching to the royal household. He's preaching to the high-level high officials. Man, do we need some of that in our country. And he's telling them their hands are full of blood. Later on in, this early, in these early chapters, he's going to talk to them about stealing houses from widows and orphans. You know, destroying people by your power, by your wealth. And these people have no place to turn to. And he says, when, when you do that, when you treat people that way, God is their guardian. God will repay you. This is why we need to be we need to be adopting kids. I don't know if you're familiar with Niños de Mexico, but there's an orphanage, uh, several orphanages down there. 
a million lost children on the streets eating out of garbage cans, and we've got maybe 130 or 140 in our homes down there. Uh, my wife and I, uh, forwarding agents for an orphanage in India, uh, 35 people. And when I first met the guy, they were on a two-week fast because they had no money. The children were fasting. The adults were fasting. They had nothing. And we eat so much. And we have so much. And I wonder, is there some way we can actually help people out there that need it? World Vision, you can, you can adopt a kid for $30 a month. You know, give up Cokes. <laughs> I don't know why I looked at you, Cindy. <clears throat> what would happen if we gave up something? <laughs> Stomping on toes. What would happen if we gave up our things that we don't really have to have? to help somebody that has to have food. You know, there are just so many opportunities out there, and it's, it's easy for us to blind our eyes to that. If we mistreat people, God sees it here. When we try to pray, our hands are full of blood. And then he says, and this, this section here I had to memorize when I was in college, and I still have it after 40 years. I memorized this under John Rawls in Lincoln. I memorized it in the RSV. Let me see if I can say it. RSV, that's the reviled, slandered perversion. <laughs> he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, come now. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you hear and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. It's basically eat or be eaten. And we need to clear up, clean up our acts. That's what he's saying here. If our hands are full of blood, we need to wash our hands. You know, whatever we do that's sinful, we need to deal with that in our life. If there's any message I see throughout the Scripture, it is this. Stop sinning. And the only way we can do that is through the, the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't do it on my own. I tried for years. I found myself in Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, I, I don't understand my own actions. I try to do what's good and evil's right there. Doesn't matter what I do. He says, sin lives in my flesh. And so it keeps producing itself through me. But with the Holy Spirit, chapter 8 of Romans, the Holy Spirit's mentioned 19 different times with several different names. The Holy Spirit's power in our lives can help us to live without sin. Now, I don't, you know, I don't look forward to seeing my wife perfect in this world. But if anybody is almost, she is, uh, you know, she's been a great help to me over the years. First time I ever said that to you. <clears throat> but it's true. And when I compare her to myself, she's always been more mature than I am. She's always had a lot, uh, a better heart than I have. I'm a very... I'm an addictive personality, but uh, I'm trying to quit. <laughs> uh, I've been struggling with it, with sin, for so long. It's not something that happens all at once. you see people being what 
it's excellent, excellent mission. Was Ajay Law there when you were there? Yeah, he was one of my past students and uh, some wonderful people there. Great. Angel Tree type ministries. And, yeah. It's good. Look at verse 18 and, and tell me what do you think God's doing here? Have you ever, if you've had children and they're adult children, have you ever gotten them together and, and just tried to talk, just to deal logically with some things? That's what God's trying to do here. His people are adults. He says, come now, let's reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. That's what we want, isn't it? And more than anything else, don't we want to be pure? That's what he's talking about. If we have failed in the past, and I don't know, you know what all your church does. If you are working with Ajay Lal over there in the Central India Christian Mission, tremendous, tremendous ministry. He has he has hundreds of thousands of people that have become Christians, and I don't know if you've read about what's going on in India, but there's a uh, a, a local. Um, Maharaja, which is like a sheik, uh, who has uh, extremely wealthy, and he has put a price on the heads of Christians. Have you have you seen that? Um, he pays a uh, hundred rubles, which is a hundred dollars, uh, to uh, kill a Christian. Uh, Two hundred dollars to burn down a church building. Five hundred rubles, that is, uh, to uh, kill a preacher. And in Orissa, which is one of the largest central India sections, uh, Ajay had to travel 11 hours to get there. He opened a prison camp for these people, I mean an escape camp, like a refugee camp, and he had to move it three times because of persecution. And people are doing everything they can to get rid of Christians. They burned down all the church buildings in, in Orissa. They've killed hundreds of Christians. They have raped the daughters of the Christians and slash their throats in front of their mothers and dads. I, I got this from Ajay Lal. It's unbelievable what they're doing. And Ajay is working hard trying to help these people. They need everything we can give them. You know, there are, there are places, I don't think any of us has probably really hurt ourselves by giving, but we need to give. And if we are willing and obedient, verse 19 says, we'll eat the best. If we obey God, we'll be blessed. But if we resist it and rebel, we will be devoured by the sword. It's eat or be eaten, obey or disobey. And then look at his description of the city of Jerusalem. Behold how the, the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers and rebels are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. Uh, who was the judge that just recently was sent to prison because he received a bribe? I read about Therefore... And here both names are used for God. Adonai, Elohim, or Adonai, Yahweh. And then that word translated almighty is actually Tzavaoth, which in Hebrew means Lord of hosts. So he says, therefore, Adonai, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will get relief from my foe and avenge myself on my enemies I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. 
So Jerusalem one day will be purified, he says. And that will happen, I think, to this country. It may be purified by fire, but it will be purified. Uh, and uh, the thing I look forward to more than anything else is that I will be purified. I recommend you read Randy Alcorn's book entitled Heaven. Uh, it made me want to go there. Uh, not right now, but, you know, I, I would like to go. Uh, my mom is there. My dad is there. Paula's mom. My younger brother died of Alzheimer's uh, just last November. I know he was a believer. There's no question about it in my mind. But, um, a lot of people have gone there before us. I look forward to it. You know, Jesus says many will come from the east and from the west and sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're going we're gonna to meet these people we've been studying about. And best of all, the scripture says that Jesus will be there at the head of the table. And we'll have fellowship with him. Well, uh, if we read on, I, what I'd like to do is take about a five-minute break, and uh, we'll come back in about five minutes and go into the second chapter. I want to deal with just four verses in the second chapter.